All right. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2, and we are going to get into the seven churches of Revelation. Hopefully, that's why you came. Um, that's why I came. Uh, hopefully, we're on the same page here. Um, I came to, to preach. You came to listen, and hopefully, we'll end at the same time, as they say, right? That you wouldn't finish before I do. But uh, we we told you that we were going to tackle this subject uh, this summer, Dear Church, Christ's Heart for His Beloved Bride. And uh, really the theme in these um, first three chapters in the book of Revelation is how much Christ loves His bride, the church, us. And He wrote these letters to seven churches in Asia Minor And you could liken them to love letters. And there's much to learn from these letters. There's admiration expressed in these letters. There's also admonition given in these letters. And so we're going to begin tonight with the message or the letter to the church in Ephesus and then uh, take the the rest of the six in the next six uh, Wednesday nights. So... Lord willing, we'll finish these up this summer. But let's look first of all here at the church of Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll just be reading through verse 7. Jesus said, this is not the apostle John, this is Jesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Again, note the red letter, right? If you have a red letter edition Bible, this is not in black. This is in red, which is an indication that this is something that Christ spoke. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. God, we come before you tonight, and we have just been commanded by your Spirit through Christ, or by Christ through the Spirit, I guess it's the better way to say it, that he who has ears, that we're supposed to hear, we're to take heed to what Christ said to this church in Ephesus. And so, Lord, would you give us uh, attentive minds and hearts, and Lord, we would not just be merely hearers of your word, but we would also be doers of your word, and Lord, we have an opportunity to examine our lives tonight, and so I pray we'd be honest uh, in that examination with ourselves and ultimately with you, and that you would use this letter to accomplish your purposes in each of our lives lives, and in the life of this church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. First things first, it's an expression that we are familiar with, we use it when talking about something that should be done or dealt with before anything else, because it's most important. Too often we let the most important things in our lives get crowded out by the less important things, maybe more urgent but less important. So my question for you tonight is, what is the most important thing in the Christian life? Jesus made it perfectly clear that there is nothing more important for the Christian than loving him. 
In fact, when he was asked what was the greatest commandment, he replied in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus demanded those who followed him to make love for him the highest priority in their lives. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus also warned his disciples that during the end times, many people would fall away from loving him. Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. And perhaps that's the greatest challenge of the Christian life, to keep our love for Christ from growing cold. The distractions of the world, the the sheer busyness of life tend to dampen our devotion to Christ. Not only that, our enemy Satan is constantly trying to lure us away from loving the Lord, 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, I am afraid lest the serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve by its craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And what Paul feared would happen to the Corinthian church happened to the church in Ephesus. They were led astray. They were drawn away from what mattered most. They were no longer simply and purely devoted to Christ. Their love for Christ had grown cold. Which I think if we're honest, we can all admit that we've experienced times in our lives when our love for Christ has grown cold as well. We know what it feels like when our relationship with Christ is more mechanical than meaningful. And we're just going through the motions without any emotion. We're doing things because we have to, not because we want to. And tonight, we're going to find out what to do when that happens. As we look at the first of Christ's seven letters here to the churches in Asia Minor, and as I mentioned this past Sunday... Here in Revelation 2 and 3, the Apostle John recorded seven letters that Jesus composed to seven literal historical churches that John served as the overseer of in Asia Minor. He was, you could call him the bishop, if you will, of these seven churches. He ministered in his home church there in Ephesus. But at the same time, we can see how these Letters not only apply to these original churches that they were originally written to, but also to our church as well, because the spiritual conditions that are found in these seven churches are representative of local churches, I think, throughout church history. And churches of all eras eras have had the same strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and, and threats as these churches had. And so consequently, these seven churches, which Jesus personally addressed in these two chapters, serve as models to measure or compare the present condition of churches in our day. And so we can use Christ's message tonight to this particular church as a grid to evaluate and determine what Christ thinks of our church. And by the way, those of us who make up our church... So this is both corporate evaluation, but it's also individual, personal evaluation. And the question I told you on Sunday that we needed to be asking ourselves this summer is if Jesus were to write a letter to our church, what would it say? If it said the message to Lakeside Bible Church or to the church in Montgomery, what would it say? And so, each of these seven letters have different contents, um, but they all follow the same literary pattern. And and we're going to see this as we go through them. Uh, Each letter contains seven basic features. There's the correspondent, and by that I mean there's a different description of Christ taken from John's vision 
of Christ in chapter 1 that we looked at Sunday. There's the city, there's the church, there's the commendation, except for Sardis and Laodicea, no commendation for them. Uh, There was also the condemnation, except for Philadelphia and Smyrna. God only, Christ only commended them. And then there's the correction and the consolation. So we're going to use those seven basic features for our outline every week, and it's just a simple way to kind of break down uh, each of these letters and kind of walk our way through these letters. So first of all, let's look at the correspondent here, the correspondent. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says this. So though Christ is not specifically mentioned here as the author of this letter, there's no doubt that these are his direct words based on the phrases taken from John's vision of Christ. Notice verse 20 of chapter 1, the last verse of chapter 1, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angel of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And he says, basically repeats that very same thing in chapter, or chapter 2, verse 1. We said that the seven stars in his right hand represented the leaders of the seven churches, and the fact that they're in his right hand signifies that the pastors and the elders of this church in Ephesus were under his sovereign authority or control. He held them firmly in his grip, and ultimately Christ was and is the one who is in charge of every church, including this one. And we see him walking among the lampstands, the seven lampstands. Again, the seven lampstands represent the seven churches, and the fact that he is walking among them signifies Christ's continual presence and watchful care as the chief shepherd overseer or overseer of the flock, protecting and and prodding and probing the church. And not to make it creepy, but guess what? He's been walking amongst us tonight. He's been here with us tonight. He is here right now. He is the Lord of the church. And so he's the correspondent, and he will be the correspondent on every one of these letters. Uh, But now to the unique part of this letter, the city. The city. This is to the angel of the church, the pastor, the elder of the church in Ephesus. And by the way, I think these letters were intended by Christ to be read to that congregation, that the pastor or the elder of that church was to read this letter on behalf of Christ um, to each of these congregations. And so it's very appropriate that we're doing this together as a church tonight. But let's talk about the city of Ephesus. It was known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. It was located where the Caister River met the Asian Sea. Uh, It was the primary seaport in Asia. It served as the gateway for the entire province of Asia Minor. Uh, In addition, four main highways converged in Ephesus, making it a trade center for all of Asia. The city, however, was most well-known for being the home of the temple of the goddess Artemis, or Diana. You may be more familiar with that name, the Roman name. And, And by the way, that temple was considered, and is still considered to this day, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the the temple of Diana was not only the center of pagan worship, but it also served as one of the most important banks in the Mediterranean world. It also provided sanctuary for criminals who came from all over Asia to find safe asylum within the walls of this temple. And so you put it all together with the fact that the worship of Diana was extremely immoral. This is how one man described Diana, the goddess Diana, her idol was a gross, many-breasted monstrosity, popularly believed to have fallen from heaven. The temple was attended by numerous priests, eunuchs, and slaves. Thousands of priestesses who were little more than ritual prostitutes played a major role in the worship of Artemis. The temple grounds were a chaotic cacophony of priests, prostitutes, bankers, criminals, musicians, dancers, and frenzied hysterical worshipers. It's no wonder that the philosopher Heraclides said that no one could live in Ephesus without weeping 
at the immorality. I read somewhere that someone described Ephesus in a way that would make Las Vegas look like a summer camp for kids. And so in the midst of this dark, decadent city, Christ planted a church. And he had it standing there as a lampstand, strategically placed in this city that desperately needed to know about Christ. Well, that's the correspondent in the city. Now let's talk about the church. Again, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus had a rich spiritual heritage. It was established by Paul himself with the help of the husband and wife team of Aquila and Priscilla and the gifted preacher Apollos. You're probably familiar with those names from the book of Acts. Paul spent three years ministering to this body of believers, which was longer than any other church that he planted or spent time at. They were the recipients of one of Paul's greatest epistles, the letter to the Ephesians, right? We know that as Ephesians today. Um, He wrote that while he was imprisoned in Rome. Paul had also appointed his young disciple Timothy uh, to pastor the Ephesian church. And later, tradition says that the apostle John served as the leader of this church until until he was exiled to the island of Patmos, which is about 60 miles west, kind of off the coast there uh, of Ephesus. And so when you consider the the stellar leadership that this church enjoyed, I mean, undoubtedly, they were the best-taught church in Asia, which enabled them to to have a 40-year tradition of faithfulness. And so there was much to commend about this church. Notice in verse 2, and we'll move to the commendation, Jesus said, I know... Let's just stop there for a second. I know, look at verse 13. Excuse me, verse 9. We'll start there in the next letter, Smyrna. I know your tribulation. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. Um, Verse 19, I know your deeds. The message to Thyatira. Chapter 3, verse 1, I know your deeds. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8, I know your deeds. And then the last letter, verse 15 of chapter 3, I know your deeds. The point is, Jesus knew everything there was to know about each and every one of these seven churches. And guess what? He knows everything there is to know about our church. Nothing ever escapes his omniscience. The fact that he knows everything or his omnipresence, the fact that he is everywhere. He is here right now reading every one of our thoughts, perceiving every one of our motives, hearing every word that's been spoken tonight, watching every action that's been done. And so he knows. And so he is in a position to make commendations and make condemnations. Because he knows. He has a very accurate, clear understanding of what's happening in that, in that church. And so Jesus began here by commending them for all the things they were doing right. Uh, first of all, they were a serving church. Notice he says, I know your deeds. They, they were doing the work of the Lord. They were faithfully evangelizing the lost and uh, effectively equipping the saints and, and humbly caring for the poor and the needy. So they were a serving church. They were also a sacrificial church. Notice he says, I know your deeds and your toil. They were laboring to the point of exhaustion. They weren't just spectators who were wanting to be entertained, but they were actively involved in advancing the cause of Christ, and they they paid the price physically and mentally and emotionally for their sacrificial service. So they were a serving church, they were a sacrificial church, but they were also a steadfast church. Notice he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. Hupomeno there in the Greek, in other words, uh, the, the idea there is patience in the midst of difficult circumstances. So they courageously endured all sorts of hardships and trials and, and persecution for the sake of Christ. Notice verse 3, 
he, he expands on this idea of being a persevering church, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. In other words, they refused to give in. They refused to give up. They didn't flinch. They didn't faint. They remained faithful to the Lord. And so they were a serving church and a sacrificial church and a steadfast church, but they were also a separated church. Notice he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. They had a high standard of holiness and they didn't tolerate sinful people within their church. They, they, they took sin seriously and and it's likely that they guarded the purity of the church by following Christ's mandate to practice church discipline, Matthew 18. Later in verse 6, he mentions the Nicolaitans, or Nicolaitans, yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We, we don't know for sure who this group was. Uh, the only other time they're mentioned is in the letter to the church in Pergamum, you look there at, at verses 14 and, 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 and 15, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we can't know for sure. But it seems like their connection or the connection that Christ makes to Balaam implies that they were some heretical group who encouraged people to abuse the grace of God and, and, and use their liberty in Christ to continue in idolatrous and immoral practices uh, coming out of that pagan culture, which they had been saved out of, to, but to continue in those, those practices. That may have been who these guys were. But notice back in verse 2... He says, you, you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to teth, test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. In other words, they were exercising discernment by carefully examining the scriptures to make sure that, that what they were being taught and the lives of those who were teaching them lined up with the scriptures. They were like the noble-minded Bereans. And they had taken seriously the warning that Paul had given their elders many years earlier in Acts chapter 20. Uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 20, uh, yeah, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. And so they, so they were. They, they diligently kept watch for wolves who might try to sneak into the church and disrupt and destroy their church. Chuck Swindoll likened the church in Ephesus to the pit bulls of orthodoxy who tenaciously guarded the truth and chased away false teachers and successively protected the doctrinal purity of their church, which we also must be doing, constantly being on the alert in order to detect and to reject false teachers and their teaching. We must never allow heresy to find a, a welcome home in our church. So for over 40 years, since this church was planted, they remained faithful to the Lord. They were loyal to his word. They were diligent in the work which he had called them to do. This, this, this hard-working persevering, righteous living, doctrinally sound church seemed to have everything someone might want in a church. And this is like the model church. But they were not the perfect church. They appeared to be on the outside. Because despite this glowing commendation, Christ has spotted one fatal flaw. And that brings us to the condemnation. Verse 4. But I have this against you. That you have left 
your first love. Or literally, your first love you have left. So this bastion of biblical truth, bustling with spiritual activity, had forsaken the most critical element to the livelihood of their entire church, and that was love. I think first and foremost, love for Jesus Christ. But this may have also included love for each other, and perhaps even love for the lost. Sometimes a a church can be so committed to doctrinal soundness that they become self-righteous and critical and judgmental and anything but loving to the lost. But in light of the context of this being a love letter to the church in Ephesus, where he's expressing his heart to his beloved bride. I think it's best to understand this, that he was referring to their love for him. And how hurtful and disappointing this must have been to the bridegroom who had always and only loved unconditionally, sacrificially, selflessly this group of saints. And now that was unrequited love. It wasn't love in return. And so that love that characterized those early years, you could say maybe when they first got saved, right, had diminished and they were, they were now 40 years into their spiritual life and maybe on to the second and third generation of the church. And they'd become cold and mechanical. Or as often as the case in marriages, we say it this way, the honeymoon was over. The honeymoon was over. And amazingly, you could never tell it by looking at this church, on the surface, there was still activity, they were still active in, in ministry, they were still orthodox in their theology, but they were no longer doing out of, out of love for Christ. They were just going through the motions, they were in maintenance mode, you could say. They were, they were still doing all the right things except for the most important thing, and that was loving Jesus. They were were busy doing the work of the Lord, but they were no longer loving the Lord of the work. Or as someone said it this way, they were simply talking about God, but no longer talking to God. Talking about Christ, but no longer communing with Christ. And there's a profound principle here from, that we can draw from the church in Ephesus, and it's this. It is possible for us as Christians to be doing all the right things and not love Jesus. It's possible to have your quiet time every day and not love Jesus. It's possible to come to church every Sunday and not love Jesus. It's possible to be involved in a grow group or to teach a Sunday school class or to serve on student ministry staff and not love Jesus. It's possible to be discipling others or being discipled and not love Jesus. It's possible to give generously to the Lord's work and not love Jesus. It's possible to serve as an elder or a deacon, and not love Jesus. It's possible to study and to preach sermons and not love Jesus. And so just because we have a weekly and a website that promotes all the things that we got going on, there's always a lot going on around here, isn't there? 
a lot of programs, a lot of things to take advantage of, schedules full of activities. It doesn't necessarily mean that we love Christ. And just because we're a Bible church, right, that, that places a high premium on preaching sound doctrine doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean we love Jesus. Christ wants more than our, our heads. He wants more than our hands. He wants our hearts. And he's not as concerned about what we do as why we do it. And I think the Lord looks past all of our spiritual activity, desiring, longing to find that what is fueling all that activity is a heart that burns with a love and a passion for Christ and his glory. You might be asking yourself, well, how do I know if I've left my first love? Well, let me give you some suggestions. Perhaps you don't long to spend time with Christ the way you used to. Maybe being around other Christians, you can kind of take them or leave them. Maybe your time in God's word, your time of prayer has become more of a duty rather than a delight. Maybe you find yourself doing your, your, your Bible study so you have something to say when your group meets, so you don't look stupid, like you didn't do your homework. Maybe you feel obligated to go to church so you don't look bad or feel guilty, or just to keep up appearances. Maybe your ministry, whatever that you've been doing, has, has become more of a burden than a blessing to you. Maybe you're less concerned about the advancement of Christ's kingdom and you're more focused on the advancement of your own personal kingdom. Well, if that describes you, don't be discouraged because your condition is not beyond recovery. There's hope because Christ gives a correction here in verse 5. And here, the master physician himself prescribed a remedy for the church in Ephesus' waning love. And he commanded them to do three things to rekindle the flame of their love for Christ. Notice verse 5, therefore, this is what I want you to do, he says, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deed you did at first. You see the three things there? Remember, repent, and if you want another R, you could say redo, <laughs> and do the deeds you did at first, right? You're going to redo some things that you used to do. Well, let's look at these three things that we can do to rekindle the flame of our love for Christ. Number one is to remember, literally to keep on remembering. In other words, just think back on how things used to be when you first came to Christ, when you were totally devoted to Christ and used to enjoy intimacy with him. That's what the prodigal son did when he was sitting in the pigsty. And he, it says he remembered that when he was back with his father that, man, even the slaves had better food than he did. He, he remembered what it was like before he had run away from home. And so rekindling our love for Christ, I think, it begins with an honest self-examination. We need to be honest about where we're at with Christ. And, and we not only need to know where we are in our relationship with Christ, but we need to also know how we got there. We need to be able to determine where we went astray or how we got sidetracked. In other words, looking more for root causes. And I think the primary cause of declining love for Christ is most often the neglect of secret duties. What I mean by secret duties is the things that we do that no one else knows that we do, and that is 
spending time in the Word and prayer. The record of church history is this, that whenever we start to backslide, fall away from the Lord, the first thing to go is our personal Bible study and prayer, prayer time. So we need to examine ourselves, but that's not enough. Even though it might be painful to admit that we're not where we once were, that's actually the, the easy part. The hard part is changing. And that's the next thing he says. He says to repent. We're to remember from where we've fallen and repent. Metanoia, change. Turn around. Do, do a 180. Stop going in one direction and go in the opposite direction. And this is, this is hard to hear because I think our, our sinful tendency when confronted with our sin is not to do anything about it. Pick up the remote control and turn on the TV. Grab our phone and start looking through our feeds. Go out and mow the yard. Go to the mall and go shopping. Pick up your controller and play another video game. Or some other diversion so we don't have to deal with the situation. But if we want our love relationship with Christ to be restored, we need to make a commitment to change and take deliberate steps to change. And I think the first thing that we, we should do is to crowd to God in prayer. And confess our lack of love for Christ. And ask him to forgive us for, for drifting away from him. From our original devotion to him. And we need to tell him that, that we know that affections matter in our relationship with him. That, that to not love Jesus with all our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength is sin. It's, it's breaking the greatest commandment. And then to earnestly beg God, to revive our passion for Christ that we once had and restore the joy of our salvation, the joy of living for him and serving him from a pure and simple motive of love. So we need to remember, we need to repent, and then we need to redo or repeat, maybe is another way you could say it. He says, and do the deeds you did at first. In other words, get back to doing those things that you used to do to nurture a relationship with Christ early on, those, those, those long times in the Word and those sweet times of prayer and, and, and just getting back into regularly attending church and getting plugged into the, to the body of Christ and, and, and faithfully serving Him and, and telling others about Christ and you know um, having a passion for the lost. It's kind of like a, a, a married couple that, and, and those of you that aren't married yet, sorry, this, you, you might uh, appreciate this later on in life. For those of us that are married, uh, we get this because, right, you, you don't wake up every morning, especially 34 years in your marriage, you know, with all these romantic feelings towards one another. That's not how it happens. That's how it works, Right. That, that maybe is how it is at the beginning when you're first dating and you're going through your engagement and you get married and then it's the honeymoon and then it's just a wonderful first few months, few, first few years, right? And then over time, those feelings begin to wane. And what I've counseled many couples who are in their perhaps 20, 25 years of being married it's, and they're, 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 there's, there's not a whole lot of love. They've lost that love and feeling, right? Um, they got to think back and remember what it was like when you were dating and when you were engaged and, and how you would talk for hours and there was never enough time, right, to talk and you didn't want to say goodnight because you had so much more you wanted to talk about. And now you're sitting at, at the restaurant, you know, having dinner and it's like you sit there in silence, 
Well, you, you got to remember and, and, and repent of that and go back and start doing those things that you did. Like, guys, doing some special, sweet, thoughtful, creative stuff for your wife that you just, you gotten lazy, you know? You, you, you bagged your trophy wife, right? You put her on the wall, right? And you went off to do other things in life because that's what guys do. We're all about goals, right? And instead of, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cultivate that relationship and keep it fresh and keep it special. And so get back to doing those things, man. That woman wouldn't be married to you if you hadn't done those things. She's like, what have you done with my husband? I married you because you were really thoughtful and sweet and creative and you were, the conversation never dragged. You were not dull and mute. Right? So you, you got to think, okay, what, what are some things I can, I can do that would be creative and fun and special? And Well, you say, well, I don't feel like it. I'm like, who cares? The Bible tells you to love your wife. So go to Walmart and buy her some, maybe not Walmart, maybe go to a nicer, go to, go to Pecan Hills or a nicer forest, right, or whatever. But go get her some flowers and, and bring them home and don't go in the garage like you normally do. Go to the front door, ring the doorbell. And be standing there with the flowers behind your back. And she's going to come to the door and she's going to be, be like, what are you doing? Because <laughs> she forgot how nice and sweet you used to be, right? So she forgot how to respond in a sweet way, <laughs> a gracious way. And so, but you got to start somewhere, even if you don't feel like it. And we need to do these things trusting that as we obey our when we, as we obey the Lord, our feelings will follow. And listen, that's not being a hypocrite. That's being obedient. And so I think herein lies the solution to lost love. We need to obey these three commands by faith, believing that they are the means that Christ himself has ordained for us to fall in love with him all over again, if you will. And Jesus provided some powerful incentive here for the Ephesians church to obey these commands. Notice he underscored the, the, the seriousness of their situation by warning them that if they didn't change, they would be chastened. And he threatened to come in judgment and remove their lampstand. Notice he says, or else, this is the end of verse 5, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. In other words, he would extinguish the light of their witness and the church would go out of existence. And tragically, despite the unprecedented blessings and, and privileges that this church had, that's eventually what happened to this church. After the fifth century, both the church and the city declined and the, and the immediate area has been uninhabited since the 14th century. I mean, if you go to Ephesus today, all you can find is ruins. And so the moral of the story is that a church or an individual who loses their love will lose their light. Why? Because a church who, who loses its love for Christ loses its reason for existence. And so it doesn't matter how spiritually spiritually active we are or how doctrinally sound we are, if we don't love Jesus, we will be useless and ineffective. And so we need to realize that this, this lack of love for Christ is a secret defect. It's not something that's obvious to anyone except for Christ because he knows our hearts. But it's a, it's a secret defect that, that silently but surely erodes a church or a, an individual. It's kind of like a spiritual sinkhole. You know, like you'll see pictures on the news and all of a sudden, you know, hey, this morning, you know, the street fell in. And the building went in it or the cars are in it. It's like, 
well, how, how long has that been happening, right? For that, that took years for that something underneath the surface was happening and nobody saw it. And then one day, boom, just caved in. But again, that doesn't have to be our story. That doesn't, be, doesn't have to be the outcome of our church or any one of us. Notice the consolation, verse 7. This is so encouraging. He who has an ear, let him hear what the church spirit says to the churches. By the way, Jesus closed all seven of these letters with that same exhortation. He who has ears to hear. This is a familiar phrase, right? Christ often would use during his earthly ministry. He would call out, hey, if you got ears, use them. In other words, listen up. What I'm saying is important. Reflect on what you're hearing, in other words. And he not only closed each of these letters with that same exhortation, he gave them a similar promise that applies to all true Christians. And it's this idea of being an overcomer. Notice he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. This was a word that was used to describe a victorious soldier. And this is uh, what, what the Bible talks about, the concept of the overcomer. And it's really characteristic of John's letters. 23 out of the 27 uses of this concept of overcomer in the New Testament are found in John's letters. So this was his passion. This whole overcoming concept. And again, this, this term doesn't refer to some special group of super spiritual saints, the overcomers. No, an overcomer is synonymous with being a believer. 1 John chapter 5, speaking of John in his letters, 1 John 5, verse 4, for whatever is born of, for, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So those who believe in Jesus Christ are able to gain victory over Satan and his temptations and overcome the world and all of its allurements, which proves that they are truly saved and will be rewarded with eternal life in heaven. And that's what is implied there. He says, I will grant to, to eat of the tree of life, which is, the, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life, obviously a picture of um, eternal life. It was first mentioned in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, right, in the garden. Last mentioned in Revelation 22. And so what Jesus was saying here is what was lost in the garden through the sin of Adam will be regained in heaven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, the paradise of God is referenced to heaven. We will be in God's presence forever. That's the promise. That's the hope. And I think this is a good place just to remind all of us, and this might be the most important thing that you hear tonight, and it's this. The Christian life is not about how much you love Jesus, but about how much Jesus loves you. That's the Christian life. It's not about how much you love Jesus. It's about how much Jesus loves you. Dear church, Christ's heart for his beloved bride. And so even though our love for Christ fluctuates, it changes, it gets cold sometimes, his love for us always stays the same. There's a book that I would highly recommend if you are feeling under conviction this, this evening and thinking, man, I, I, just, I just, I feel like I'm, Christ is talking to me, that, that I've left my first love. There's a book that I would encourage you to, to find. You could probably find it on Amazon. It's an old book by a guy named Octavius Winslow. Hint, hint, he's a Puritan. And this is the name of the book. Personal Declension and Revival of Religion in the Soul. Talking declension, talking about declining, right? So the whole book is about 
Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the, the example of the church in Ephesus, what do you do when your love declines? How do you, how do you experience revival in your soul? Let me just read one quote from that. He says this, Remember that though your love has waxed cold, the love of thy God and Father towards thee has undergone no change. Although he has hated thy declension, has rebuked thy wandering, yet his love he has not withdrawn from thee. What an encouragement to return to him again. Not one moment has God turned his back upon thee, though thou hast turned thy back upon him times without number. Retrace thy steps and return again to God. Though thou hast been a poor wanderer and hast left thy first love, Though thy affections have strayed from the Lord and thy heart is gone after other lovers, still God is gracious and ready to pardon. He will welcome thee back again for the sake of Jesus, his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased. Amen? How beautiful is that? Brian mentioned earlier how lovely, how beautiful Christ became to him when he was finally born again. We opened tonight singing that song about center my life and how beautiful Jesus is. I'm going to date myself now because one of my spiritual heroes is a guy named Keith Green. And he was a child, if you don't know anything about Keith Green, he was a child prodigy on the piano. He's actually on TV, like he was a phenom, like an 11-year-old boy playing piano on, on, on you know, national television. He got radically saved um, during the Jesus Revolution, which we just, a lot of us just watched that movie in the mid-70s, dedicated his musical career to the Lord. And just a few years later, in 1982, at the height of his success and and usefulness to the Lord, he died tragically in a plane crash. In fact, it was in Lindale, Texas, right up there by Tyler, where his last day's ministry ranch was. He was only 29 years old. He tells a story how one night around midnight, he wrote a letter to God, and he said he didn't know where to put it, so he, or he didn't know where to send it, so he put it in his Bible. <laughs> but this is what he said in that letter. He said, Lord, you've got to do something about my heart. He said, a lot of time has gone by since I met you, and it's starting to harden up and get old and wrinkled and calloused. He said, make the skin of my heart soft like baby skin. And then he goes on to say how he stayed up until two in the morning and wrote what is perhaps his best known and most loved song. And I'm referring to, oh, Lord, you're beautiful. And he, in the, the lyrics, quote Revelation chapter 2. And Chris Tomlin recently did a cover of it that I thought we should listen to tonight as we close. And I just want to encourage you to perhaps just bow your head, close your eyes. It is a lyric video. If you're not familiar with the song, you might want to look at the lyrics. But just, let's just make this our prayer tonight as we conclude.